Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Thank you very much. That was great music this morning, and it's lovely to be down front and hear all of your voices lifting and praising the name of God. First things first, I don't think I've ever said this before, but I'm looking forward to it. Children, you are dismissed to go to children's church and children's choir. Look at the power that's, uh, you know, right in those, right there. There they go. Go on. Get it. We're going to be speaking at such a high level that we can't, you know, for the rest of the hour here this morning, it's just so deep that we can't have small minds in the way. So let's, let's move them out here. Uh, good morning once again. My name is Keith Kemper. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be up here and speak. It doesn't happen that often, as most of you know. In fact, it's always very interesting for me to be up here and to look out upon you. And those who don't have any clue who I am, they look on your face like, hey, where's the big guy? Um, and then there's others of you, I, I can tell when I, I get up here, I can see your face. You're going, oh, no. Uh, where's the big guy? So um, the big guy's in Michigan. And he's with family, and Pastor Gary, as I think you know, is filling about 17 other jobs in the church right now. So it seemed like a lot to ask him to both lead worship and uh, give the message, which I think he was scheduled to do both this week, and we somehow uh, found a way out of that. Since it was Groundhog Day, we, we thought he might be trapped doing that over and over and over, and so we thought we'd better let him out of that. Uh, incidentally, I don't know if you were keeping track, Puxitani Phil did not see a shadow. And if you were here in the great Northwest, Kim and I were debating... Uh, is this geographically driven? I mean, do we, do we have our own groundhog or an, it, no? It's all about Pennsylvania? I don't think it is. I, I think we get our own. What, what do we have? We don't have groundhogs. I don't know about you. We have rabbits in the yard, and they came out this morning, and they saw no shadow. So early spring, that's the good news. Um, somebody thought it was a good idea to have the lawyer speak this morning, and I did full disclosure, in my day job, uh, I am a trial attorney. And it's a little hard doing the transition from trial attorney to this. Uh, it's not that I'm not accustomed to speaking in public. It's usually there's just only 12 of you. And this morning, there's a few more. And you slip into certain habits that are sort of hard to get out of. So you may have to help me out. If at some point, any point during the message, I stand up and I say, Objection! Uh, it would be very nice if one of you would stand up and say, Sustained. Okay? So then... Then we can move on and everything will be just fine. It'll be good. Uh, one of the hardest things about getting up and sharing uh, with y'all, uh, sorry, Nashville last week, uh, is that, um, well, most of you know me. So it, it's not the public speaking part of this. It's that I know that you know me and that you know that I am not a perfect person. Uh, I guess the good news is I know you and... Most of you are not either. Um, but I, I can't get up. I don't know how Jim does it. I think perhaps because he is a perfect person, best I can tell. I mean, I, I've never seen him sin. Have you? Okay. So, you know, not, I don't follow him around or anything. But um, I can't share with you uh, the truths of God unless I've struggled with them, wrestled with them myself during the week. 
because I can't be genuine about them. I can't be honest with you unless it's, it's something that God's working on in my own heart. Uh, I hope that's true of you as well, so that as we open the word this morning and we go before the throne of grace, uh, I think you recognize that I, as well as you, need to seek his mercy and his wisdom and his strength. And so let's do that. Let's, let's start by asking God to bless this time together and what comes out of my mouth so that it's pleasing to him. Lord, thank you for the chance to be here. Lord, thank you for laying on my heart this burden this morning and for the chance then to get it out and to share it with these fine folks. Lord, I pray that you'll watch over this time and this message and that'll be what you want me to say. It'll be what you need these people to hear. And that, Lord, as the family of God will go out this week and put into practice the things that are in your word, that it might not be a book that sits on our shelf, but that it might guide our lives, direct our behavior and our activity. Uh, may that be true of me. May it be true of the people that are here this morning. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, three years ago this morning, uh, my father, Pastor Bruce Kemper, passed away. And so, interesting confluence of things going on today. We've got Super Bowl, Groundhog's Day. My wife informed me that the date is actually a palindrome. Uh, wow. Uh, didn't know what a palindrome was. No, I'm kidding. I did. Uh, and it's, a, it's the anniversary of my father's, uh, my father's death. His first name was Ernest. But as you know, he went by Bruce. He was a pastor. He was a college president. Because if you're a college president, they have to give you an honorary doctorate because you can't be a president and not be a doctor. So, of course, every now and then, just for fun, we called him the right reverend president, Dr. E. Bruce Kemper. But most of the time, we just called him dad. And I was thinking of him this week as I studied to bring the morning message, but I also thought him as I thought about him as I listened to last week's message. And I hope most of you were here for, uh, last week for Pastor Jim's message when he preached from 2 Timothy chapter 1, which is where I'll be picking up today. But if you were here last week, then you know that Pastor Jim talked about our story. Our story as a church. Uh, his story as a pastor. Your story as a believer. And in particular, of course, Timothy's story as, as a young pastor, as a protege of the Apostle Paul. So I couldn't help but think about my story. And of course, a large part of my story was that which came from E. Bruce Kemper. And so it seemed appropriate to give just a little tribute this morning. Most of you knew him. And, of course, he was a, he was a handsome young lad. Perhaps not when you knew him. Uh, but in fact, we, we used to joke that I can barely remember when he had this color of hair because for most of my life it was what we called almighty white. Uh, we just figured it was a blessing from God. Uh, but it was always that... Uh, bright white color. But of course, uh, more importantly, he was always a great role model for me. Um, This is actually a fake picture. This is at Moody Bible Institute. And I don't know, did he get suspended for even taking this picture at Moody? Uh, But, you know, dad was a teetotaler, well, until the last couple weeks of his life when someone said, you know, have a little wine for your stomach's sake, which he took very seriously. So uh, this is is a made-up picture. It didn't actually happen that way. But so much of what I learned, he taught me. Uh, he gave me a great love for music. You know, there he is with his, uh, uh, I don't know what you call that, tub thumping. 
that probably has a different meaning now, but back then that's what it meant. It was his own style of base. In fact, I think this is a Gilead uh, Bible camp for some, I don't know what he was doing. He really, he really didn't have any musical talent other than singing. He was, a, he was wonderful at singing, but he couldn't play any instrument. Uh, taught me how to barbecue. This house is in Edmonds. It's still there. I can drive by it. I know, I know right where it is, and I remember it well, and I actually have that apron uh, from my father. Taught me how to be competitive and play games. Um, I think he's taken, he had dentures from uh, as long as I could remember, and he has his teeth out there. I don't know if you can see that in that picture. It's a, it's a little blurry. Uh, but we played aggravation, and we played for keeps, and you can al- already see that I'm contemplating, after I win this game, how do I take over the world? <laughs> Taught me how to raise cattle, which we always had a few of. How to slaughter a chicken. <laughs> I really don't know what's going on here with my brother Ken, other than... Okay, I'm not making this up, and since he's not with it, well, okay. He, <laughs> when, we, when we first got chickens, he, did, he just wasn't comfortable with the whole, you know, normal way of doing it, so, but it wasn't any better because he'd hold them and shoot them with a 22. So, um, <laughs> I don't exactly know what he and Ken are doing here, never watched this take place, whether they were doing the wishbone right off the bat, or I don't know, but they're... Uh, we always had some farm animals and um, adventures that surrounded farm animals. Um, taught me what to do when you get a Charlie horse during the Christmas picture. Okay. So, sorry, I just couldn't help it. This is just such a funny picture. Casey's trying so hard to be sweet for the picture. Dad gets a Charlie horse because he can't kneel at that age and is trying to work it out while getting the picture taken. So it's just, just one of those great uh, pictures that brings back good memories of my father. But of course, um, nothing quite matched his uh, what he taught me about fashion. So here you go. Uh, uh, mom had it going on there too, though. You got to... <laughs> mom, is that a raccoon on top of your head? Or what, what exactly What exactly is that thing there? It's amazing. I didn't know you could get hair to do that, but there it is. Uh, and that's so now it's here. This is his Bible instruction class when he's pastor in Spokane. And you can tell I'm already picking up. I'm picking up the vibes He's got on that white suit with the white bucks, and I'm pretty sure he saw that from an evangelist on TV and thought it was a good thing. Um, I've got the white belt and the wide tie going on, and, uh, you know, it was all only uphill from there, so. And then by, when we went to California, we really had to sort of uh, be fashionable or be out, so there, you can tell we fit right in, or not, uh, so. Let's get out of California here if we could. Uh, and, of course, he was always leading the way on eye, fashionable eyewear as well. Uh, perhaps too, too early in his senior citizenship, he covered his whole face with some sort of uh, darkening. But he also taught me how to, uh, sorry, skipped ahead there, grow, grace, grow old gracefully with the woman he loved. And, of course, someday I want to look just like him. There, see if we can, there he is again. So once again with his dentures out. Um, uh, more than anything else, uh, uh, we just, we miss him. Uh, we wish he was here. But I thought about my spiritual heritage this week as I thought about this passage. And I uh, hope you thought about what Jim shared last week as well. Turn, would you, with me to first, second, second Timothy, sorry. Second Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy, the first chapter. And let's pick up where we left off last week. Last week we sort of got through verse 7. We're going to pick up in verse 8, and as you're turning there, uh, remember that Paul is writing this to Timothy. 
Timothy is his young protege. He's the pastor of the local churches. And Paul, who's at the end of his ministry, who's in prison, in fact, who's probably about to be martyred, is writing to Timothy and giving him what are perhaps final instructions. They, they also read very much like a father giving instructions to his son. And in many ways, Paul was at least Timothy's spiritual father, and so he is writing to his son here and giving him directions. But Paul's instructions, of course, are not just to Timothy. They are Paul writing as an apostle, and they're things that you and I should take to heart. Picking up in verse 8. Well, let's, let's read verse 7 just for the transition. So, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Uh, what a way to start out there. And as I picked this up this week, I thought, oh, oh, good. Um, I get to talk about being ashamed of the gospel and suffering. What could be better? Um, so he says, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Does that remind you of any other passage in scripture? You can be a little interactive this morning if you want. You know, so, you know, I know Jim's very formal. You know, I almost put on jeans and a t-shirt and left it untouched so I could walk around and you guys would be very, very comfortable. But I thought, yeah, that doesn't work for me. And, and besides, you'd think I was untucking my shirt just because, you know, I'm putting on weight. But that's not it. Uh, but we can be a little more informal this morning. Can you think of another passage where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Romans. Romans 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for those who believe. Most of what we look at this morning, Paul is going to have said a number of other places, and we won't have time to turn them to them all, but I want you to think about them as we go through this. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he does, as he gets into this passage, say and it's be- that it's because of the power of God. And as I read this passage, I thought, you know, I've been blessed to be born into a family that really has set an incredible example for me when it comes to sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. Growing up with my dad as a pastor, of course, whether it was in, he was youth director, Christian ed director, he filled a number of different, janitor, actually in this church when it was over at Emmanuel. But then I sat under his preaching as pastor in Spokane, in Anaheim, then again in Port Orchard. And of course, even when he was president of Grace Bible College, he used to speak a lot. So I lost track long ago how many times I heard him preach. I don't think the man ever gave a Sunday morning message where he didn't, he didn't give a chance for someone who didn't know Jesus Christ to become saved, where he shared some version of the gospel. It was always on the tip of his tongue. He was always ready to share it. And it wasn't just my dad. Those of you who know my mom, and I don't say this to embarrass her this morning, but um, mom is fearless. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, if... If you are her doctor or her nurse or her waitress or the cab driver or heaven forbid you get stuck next to her on an airplane, buddy, you are going to hear the gospel. Okay? She famously or perhaps most infamously uh, tried very hard to win Mike Love, a lead singer for the Beach Boys, to salvation on a cross-country flight. Okay? He said he was into transcendental meditation. I think he was trying to take a nap, but mom was not going to let him go. So I don't know, Mom, if Mike Love ever accepted Christ before he went into eternity, but let's hope and pray that he did. Uh, For some, sharing Jesus Christ is like second nature. So 
why for the rest of us is it so hard? Why do we struggle with sharing what we know about Jesus Christ? Is it possible? Is it, is it actually possible that these words are for us? Are we ashamed of the gospel? And I tried to spend some time seriously examining myself and, and asking myself those hard questions. Am I ashamed of the gospel? If so, why? Why would it be hard for me to share? And I hope you ask yourself that. I mean, I came up with what I think are some of the answers. I mean, number one, it's not popular. Now, there was a time when America would have been considered a Christian nation, and there's some people even now that bristle at that. I hope that's not you. But in our literature, in our law, time and time again in our history, we're referred to as a Christian nation. But Pew Research did some surveys here over the last couple of years, and they found that now, in America, only 43% of Americans now align with any form of Protestant Christianity. 43%. Now, you can add to that another 20% that, are, that would consider themselves Catholic, and that's more than a majority, but I think you know within those people who say they align with the denomination or say that they're Catholic, that there's a whole wide group of them who really don't have any practice whatsoever. They just refer to themselves as Christian. But both of those numbers, whether Catholic or Protestant, are both way down over just the last 10 years. So it's become an unpopular message. You are not speaking to the majority now when you go out and you want to tell them about Jesus Christ. In fact, you'd be stunned in this generation if you were to even ask if they've heard the story of Noah, because a good half of them haven't in America. Amazing. So we know it's unpopular. We know it's not at the forefront of people's minds. But it also runs counter to human understanding. If you were to have a conversation with someone, even someone who says they believe in God, and you were to ask, how do you get into heaven? The vast majority would still say, well, I hope I'm good enough and that God accepts me. (laughs) Now, Now, how it is that human understanding can be so arrogant as to think that somehow there's something you or I might do that God goes, that's eh, close, but yeah, come on in. I mean, isn't that just a, the strangest notion? And yet, one of the other reasons the gospel is unpopular is because it doesn't focus on what you or I do. It's about something else that happened. It's about what he did. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, we won't take time to, to turn there, but some of you know the passage. Paul says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I mean, think about it. What? Some guy died and you're saved and get to go to heaven? I mean, that just sounds nuts to people who don't know anything about spiritual things. Of course, then, if you have a conversation, some of what I want you to do this morning is think through these things. Because some of the things I think we're embarrassed about, some of the things I think we're timid about, we don't need to be. Because if you were to flip that conversation and ask them, well, well, how do you think it goes? You might get one of those conversations that goes, well, I'm just hoping I'm good enough. It's like, really? That's it? And you think, I'm the the crazy one? But that's sort of the last part of it. Christianity sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? I mean, it just, it, it sounds a little nuts. We believe in some pretty wild stuff. Think about it, don't we? Uh, we believe in an almighty God who we can't see, but who we worship and who we believe made all things. We believe that he had a son that he sent to earth that we didn't get to see, but that he died on the cross and that by his death we can have salvation. And not only that, that he rose from the dead. 
Okay, there's not a lot of people out there that are real keen on or have seen or think it's just normal that people rise from the dead. And we believe that there's a heaven and a hell that are consequences depending on the decision that you make. That's pretty bold. That's supernatural. That's stuff that's kind of out there. And yet these are all underpinnings of the gospel, aren't they? We claim to believe them, but do we really believe them? How many times have you sat here on a Sunday morning when Pastor Jim's talking about one of the dear old saints that's just passed away, but then called you to rejoice because he says, you know, we're going to see them in heaven again someday, right? I'm always a little amazed how tepid the response is. Sadly, as I sit over here every Sunday, how tepid my response sometimes is. I don't think it's that I don't really believe it, but it certainly is not at the forefront of the things that I'm just willing to go out and shout from the hilltops about. And why is that? Sometimes we just need a good gut check on the fact that we believe things that are supernatural. Get used to it. We do. That's part of our faith. It it has to be. In fact, if you don't believe that, I don't think you get the title believer. We believe in the supernatural. What, what's, the, what's the other alternative, though? I mean, think about that. Again, you know, back up just a, a bit and give it a little, little bit of thought. The vast majority of folks who say they don't believe in Christianity, it's not because they don't believe in the supernatural, because if you pin them down, they believe in Allah or Buddha or karma or aliens or some mystical force that's every bit as supernatural as what you and I believe. And let's say you're among that small percentage that actually call themselves atheists. What are you putting your faith in? Well, let's see. Matter eternally existed. There was a big explosion and everything came into be. And then this one little cell through millions and millions of mutations, all for the good, turned out to be this complex being who now is self-aware. Which requires more faith. I mean, talk about supernatural. Yeah, there's no God in that process, according to them. But man, it, there better be, because I don't know how else it happens. So we don't have anything to, to be embarrassed about. We don't have anything to be ashamed of. We might be in the minority view, but we, we follow the truth. You know that what we're following is what happened. You know, because you've seen it in your lives, you've seen it in changed Lives of other people, we were in Sunday school this morning rehearsing supernatural things that we've seen happen. And it's undeniable. You have nothing to be ashamed of. There's a whole world out there that needs to know about the supernatural, and they need to know about it from God's point of view, and it's up to you and us, you and me, to tell them. Read on in this verse. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he goes on to there, he says... Uh, Let's start again at 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Oh, good. (laughs) So if you're not ashamed, and this is the beautiful part of it, and it is B-E-A, beautiful, we get to suffer for sharing the gospel. Isn't that great? Uh, We just uh, just watched It's a Wonderful Life uh, with uh, Jimmy Stewart, and I always love the part where he comes back to real life, and do you want to do it? He didn't want to do it. I was going to ask Casey to say, I have a mic on, but I, I can do it anyway. Where once he finally realizes he's back, he goes, yay! And that's sometimes the way I think we're supposed to react when we find out that we're, we're going to suffer. Hey, if you share the gospel, you get to suffer. Yay! My mouth bleeding burnt. Yay! It's, that's not my reaction. I don't know if it's your reaction, but it was the apostles' reaction. You remember the disciples when they were 
caught and tortured and persecuted, and then they're sent back to the other disciples, and they got together and they worshiped and they thanked God that they were allowed to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that's what Paul's expectation here is. Uh, And I don't know about you, but that's not what I look forward to. But how do we know that we're going to suffer if we share the gospel? Well, because the scriptures say that time and time again. It's not just this passage here, but if you flipped over just a couple pages, Paul says it right nearby. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, he says, In fact, in fact, this is a fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't you just hate that? (laughs) That is not my favorite part of scripture. It seems to me it'd be so much easier if what he said was, anyone who chooses to live a godly life, well, at that point, you can take it easy. It's all blessings from there. Just sit back. Look for ways to spend all the money that God's going to bless you with. Oh, and don't forget to tithe. I mean, wouldn't that, isn't that the way you really think it should be? I mean, I can't find where it says that. I'd be happy, I think, with just sort of the Old Testament proverbial notion that, uh, you know, if you're, uh, how would they put it in Proverbs? Let's see. Uh, you say something to the effect that God protects the righteous man, but the man that doeth evil, thou shalt smite repeatedly about the head and face, or something along those lines. You know, it's, that's, that's kind of the, the way that we're used to it from the Old Testament. I don't know where these prosperity gospel guys that you might see on TV get this understanding. It's like their message is, all, if you're a believer, all you have to do is pray, call in the name of Jesus, and you'll be blessed with camels and sheep and Teslas and bacon and you'll have everything you need for as long as you want it i but but it's not in there there's no hint of that in the new testament in fact in the new testament says if you follow christ you will be persecuted and he told his disciples the same thing do you remember what he told them won't turn there either but john 15 18 if the world hates you remember that it hated me first so how do you deal with that one now consider they lived in a different time like Timothy did. As Jim pointed out last week, Paul's writing at the end of his life. He's in prison. He's probably about to be martyred as we just discussed. He's under the reign of Emperor Nero, the whack job Caesar who set fire to Rome himself and then blamed the Christians. And I, I think Jim even mentioned this. He then sat around and tried to be creative on how you could kill Christians. So it was anywhere from putting them in the forum with wild animals to see how long they lasted to impaling them on crosses uh, along the streets of Rome and using them as streetlights at night by lighting them on fire. So that's the environment that Paul is living in and writing into. And I don't think you and I suffer like that. I mean, do we have any concept when he says, if you follow Jesus Christ, you will suffer? I don't think we do. We, we've got it incredibly easy. Now, it may not last. The signs are there now. I mean, the things that you might suffer now is there's going to be people that don't like you. Uh, there may be some that really don't want you around. Uh, Mike Glove might have been annoyed by my mom for a few hours on an airplane. They might shut you out of certain social circles or not let you into their businesses. You may face discrimination at work or while trying to get a job or maybe even trying to get into, say, med school or something like that. And it may not be here yet, but I don't think it's going to be long before you might just go to jail for adhering to traditional Christian values. 
And then you might get a chance to suffer like Paul. And I wonder, will I be ready? Will I be willing? Or will I shrink back? But God's faithful, and he is in this passage. He doesn't ask us to suffer without giving us the power to do it. And that's the next clause in this verse. He says, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Great phrase. What is that power? What is it that he's talking about? What is it that we have here? Uh, the word that he uses, I don't know if you can see that, is a word in the Greek that's spelled dunamis. That I actually put the Greek up there so that you could look at it and say, yeah, that's the Greek. Uh, but the transliteration of it is dunamis, and that is the root word, or at least the same underlying Greek word from where you get the word dynamite. So it's this, it's this reference to the outworking of, of power. And you can see from the slide, so if it's on the slide, you know it's true that Paul uses the word dunamis at least 45 times in his passages. And it's usually translated power, but it can also be translated with either might uh, or strength. So, what does that tell us? Why is it there? Uh, well, look what he does. He gives us this list, this example, if you will, at this point, uh, of all the ways that God works out his power. And he does it in just this short little couple verses here. So, look, look back at the passage. It says, by the power of God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's quite a list. Let's see if we can get it up here. Uh, you want to talk about the power of God and how it's displayed. And there we go. Before I get into this list, flip over to one other passage that's real similar. We'll just flip there and come right back. Ephesians chapter 3. Again, we could go to a, a whole section of passages on all of these this morning. We're just going to detour to just one or two. But in Ephesians chapter 3, you get another idea of what he's talking about in 320. It's almost like a doxology. Paul gets excited about what he's writing about here, and here's what he writes. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's that same word, dunamis, uh, and it's this power. It's this power that God is, it's God's power, and it's at work in us, according to him. And here's a list of things just in those two verses. Uh, what's the power that God's given us to both not be ashamed of his gospel and to endure suffering? Well, he saved us. And by that, he empowers us to live a holy life. Again, it's important that there's nothing that we did. It's not our power. We're not part of it. But it's all about him. He did it according to his own will, purpose, and strength. God called it into being. He said, this is what I'm going to do, and it happened that way. He gave us his grace, his saving grace. He did it through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And by it, he destroyed death. I wish we had time to look at 1 Corinthians 15, but that's what it said he did. He, he didn't just give us life. He destroyed death, and by that, he gives us eternal life. And number eight, my favorite, he did all of this before the beginning of time. And I just love that idea. When I pause to reflect on all that God did to save me and how amazingly Paul crams all that into these two verses, I, then it, uh, well, then you need... You need Chris Pratt here to show you what happens uh, when you try and digest all that at once. So, okay, thanks, Chris. We'll send you on. Yep. 
so what's the point of all this? Well, why does, and why does Paul cram all this stuff into these two verses? For this reason. He just told Timothy, and he told us, I've called you to testify to the gospel, and you're going to suffer. So you need a little motivation at that point. You need, you need a little buck up so that you're ready for what's about to come. And so he goes through this list, and he basically says, here's your motivation. After all Christ did for you, how can you not tell somebody else about it? And then he finishes here with thoughts about the, his assurance that God is trustworthy and faithful and that he has it all under control. And of course, we could spend Sunday, we could, we could be here till Super Bowl, uh, talking about each one of those that were on the list. Uh, but like I said, we'll just hit a couple. I love the phrase in there that it's not because of anything that I have done. Not because of anything I've done. Again, uh, that should spark some thoughts. One of the things that sparks in me is I think of the song uh, by Casting Crowns that I think is probably one of the most poignant and clever uh, turns of phrase. And there it is. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. what What a great song. What a great way of encapsulating what Paul is saying here. There's another verse that says almost the identical thing. And if you're an Awana, you know the song that goes with that. You know what verse that is? You can say it. Awana guy. No. Titus 3, 5. Someone someone want to sing it? Sing the little jitty. Not by works of righteousness that I have done, but... You can sing along, you know. But according to his mercy, he has saved me. Okay, another, another place where Paul says the same thing again. It's not what we have done. It's what God has done through us. Uh, I, I wish we had time to look at Ephesians chapter 1. Actually, let's do that real quick before we finish this morning because I think it's important where Paul sets out all these things that God has done. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And if you're not there, I'm going to read it to you. Here's what he says. Very parallel passage. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in according with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Skip over to verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Amazing theology in just these few verses of what God did uh, to save you and I. And again, this is the part that I suppose gets me the most. That he did all this before the creation of the world. What an incredible clause in both this verse, the one in Ephesians, and in a couple other places. Peter writes the same thing. And in, in Peter's writings, he calls Jesus Christ uh, the Lamb who was chosen before the creation of the world. And in Revelation, John writes the same thing. The Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. Again, try and wrap your head around that one. That before there was time... God saw me, and he knew me, and he came up with a plan to save me. And he did it all because of his own pleasure and will. Uh, Again, still blows my mind. Um, I have a confession to make. It's it's on behalf, it's mostly me. My wife's involved in it too. It's not her fault. Dogs don't like us. They say you can tell a lot by um, how animals react to you, but... I, I got to believe that dogs just don't like us. 
During our 25, nearly 25 years of marriage, we've had two dogs, exactly two dogs, both lovely Labradors. And I'm not sure if I knew what it was going to be like to raise either of these dogs that I would do it all over again. Because, well, so the first, it, this is a bit of a confession. I mean, it's amazing, but it's also a little bit hurtful. Uh, because we bring these dogs in, and you, and you nurture them, and as soon as you give them any freedom, they run away. Okay? They take off. They're gone. They're running around the neighborhood. Now, I mean, you think, why don't you want to live with me? I fed you. I walked you. Uh, I hugged you. I don't, I don't kiss the dogs because that's disgusting. Okay? But I even pick up after them. I mean, come on, who does that? And, and then you give them a little freedom, and what do they do? They run off. So Kim's first dog, she got, actually got a little bit before we, you know, started getting serious, uh, was, was named Java. And this was, you know, she wasn't working for Starbucks yet, but she names her first dog Java, Black Labrador. I lost track of how many times we got in the car and drove around the neighborhood looking for Java. And it's, it, I mean, I, how can you be ashamed of the gospel when you're, when I'm so embarrassed by the other things I've done in my life. I'm sitting in a car with the window down, driving through the neighborhood, Java! Java! I mean, t- I mean, at the 10th time, the neighbors feel sorry for us. They're bringing us cups of coffee. They don't understand why we're doing what we're doing. I mean, it's, it's, it's humiliating. But if I knew what a heartache it, it was going to be, I don't think I'd have got that dog. And then I think about what God did for us. God knew. He knew the heartache he would have to endure. He knew I would run away. He knew he would have to sacrifice to save me. He knew this before the beginning of time, before he did anything. And yet he saw me, he saw you, he loved you, and he came up with a plan to save you. And after all he's done for us, how can we not tell others about God's great love? Let me give you one other perspective uh, before we're out of here today. Uh, some of you know, uh, I'll skip ahead here a little bit, the famous, infamous uh, Penn Gillette. Penn is the pen part of Penn and Teller. So yeah, you probably can't read that, but I'll give it a shot. Um, he's the big guy of Penn and Teller, sort of comedy magic, you know, bloody magic, sort of goofy uh, comedy. But he's become sort of the more outsp- one of the more outspoken atheists in our culture. Uh, and he has sort of an interesting point of view on, you know, what, whether or not he wants people to share Jesus Christ with him. But he, he says this, and I, I actually had the video, but it was sort of, you know, a selfie up his nose, and it really wasn't. It, it was bad. So, um, so here you get this instead, which is equally worse, uh, equally as bad. But Penn says, you know, I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people that don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell... And people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever. And you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. But how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is way more important than that. Isn't that a great way to think of it? That's an interesting perspective, and Penn might be totally wrong about God, 
but he's dead on when talking about sharing Jesus Christ. And he may not speak for all atheists, but at some point, every one of them is going to get hit by a truck. And you and I cannot let social awkwardness or embarrassment stand in the way. Let's finish the passage. Last verse. We're supposed to, we're supposed to get through 12 today, and we're going to at least mention it. So look at the end. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that's why I'm suffering as I am. He puts bookends on it. Starts with the suffering, ends with the suffering. Lots of theology in between. It's wonderful. And then he finishes with this beautiful verse. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Paul says he's not ashamed and he's able to testify to the point of death because he knows He knows Jesus Christ. And you remember back in Philippians where he says, I've lost everything. I've given everything up for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Do you have people in your life that you just know? You know so well, you know how they're going to behave in certain situations, whether good or bad. You've got those people, don't you? Uh, My wife and I have an unnamed person in our life where we lie to her about when we exaggerate. We don't lie because that'd be a sin. So we exaggerate when the event at our house will start. So and we tell her an hour earlier than it's supposed to start so that maybe she'll be there when it starts. And, and it works. Um, so we told her 3 o'clock on Christmas. Kid you not, at 4 o'clock, and we were going to sit down at 5. At 4 o'clock, she calls and says, when, when am I supposed to be there? Yeah, see, there you go. Um, I've got a partner who he... He's more last minute than I am. If you give him a brief to write, it's, it can be a huge brief. It's a major deal, and you've not seen word one of it on the morning that it's due. But again, I'm not making this up. 30 seconds before the courts close, he files it, and it's always good. And if you didn't know him, you would just panic. You'd freak out and think, we're going to lose a million dollars. And then, then, you know, if you know him, you go, oh, that's, that's the way he does it. He's got him. This, this perhaps is a more apt analogy. Um, if you have kids, especially if you have small kids, or if you remember when you had small kids, who do you know and trust so well that you're willing to leave your kids with after you pass? Have you gone through that exercise? If you've put together a will, you've had to sit down and you've had to think about, who do I trust with the most precious possession in this whole. And if you haven't done a will, come see me afterwards because we do have really good rates. And sorry, shameless bishop. But that's what he's talking about. And to still pen Gillette's quote, this, this is even more important than that. You and I, like Paul, are called to follow Christ. That means taking all we have, not just our children, our spouse, our family, all of our well-being, everything that we own, our work, our reputation, our lives, our future, our eternity, to take those and entrust them to Jesus Christ. And if you know him, if you really know him, that's not a hard call. Come back up and uh, close this with a song. I'd like to invite you to stand again.
And let's reflect on what we've just heard from Mr. Kemper and in our closing hymn, I Know Whom I Have Believed. So just a couple of questions for you as you leave today. Do you know Jesus Christ? Before I let you out of here this morning, sorry, afternoon, do you know him? If you don't, here's your chance. You are not a cosmic accident. You are not left here by aliens. That's crazy stuff, okay? No, you were made. You were created with love by an almighty God who saw you, who formed you, and who loved you before the beginning of time. And who not only did that, but he came up with a plan to save you. And that plan was carried out by his own son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. He gave himself up and he died And the death that he paid was in my stead and was in yours. Because we, as stupid, crazy creations, ran away. Didn't realize what it was that our Creator wanted to do for us. But thankfully, now he lives. And as a result, you can as well. Believe in him today. Put your trust in him. By that simple act of faith, go from death to life. Go from not knowing to being part of the family of God. And you can do that right as we stand here today. And if you do, I won't have to tackle you before that truck hits you. If you know Jesus today, who's on your list? Who do you know that's headed to eternity without Christ? And not my words, but those of a famous atheist... How much do you hate that person to let them go to that fate? Don't let it end that way. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Don't ever be ashamed.